Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. unveiled love. And we talked about how Jesus unveils once and for all the nature of who the Father has always been. We started on Easter Sunday and we we joined Jesus on the road to Emmaus where he showed up to these two men that were walking and trying to understand the story they were in. And he said, the whole story has always been about me. And on that day we said that if if we could only see our present road from Jesus's eyes, that we'd be filled with delight and not despair. Last week, we stepped into the Old Testament story of Job. And we talked about how our trials right now, the things that we go through, they're not what we think. That God isn't resisting our dreams, but instead he's refining us to be able to stand up under our dreams. That God isn't forgetting us. No, he's actually forging his character in us. He's building you and I as a house that he can dwell with us forever. Today, I want to step in the Old Testament and I want to look at the forefathers of our faith. I want to look at how the father met them despite their weaknesses and their limitations. And I want to look and see how Jesus is the fullness of the father who today longs to pour into you, to raise you up, and to call you out to live from your true nature. Here's the big idea I want to share this morning. It's this. No matter where you've been, who you are, or how you struggle... God is presently drawing near to move you to a new place with a new portion so you can live from a new position. Hear me this morning. No matter where you've been, no matter what is on your spiritual or physical resume or what's not, no matter who you would define yourself as, you would say, well, this is what I think I'm wrestling with. This is what I think I'm struggling with. These are my limitations. These are the things that are holding me back. Or no matter how you struggle, whatever the brand of sin or struggle, your God is presently drawing near to move you to a new place. That our Father has come for all of us. No matter how far we miss it, no matter how far away we've gone from home, that he's coming right now onto your road and my road, and he will transform any who will if we just respond to him. And so this morning, I want to look at these three fathers of our faith, these three imperfect sons, as a mirror to see ourselves in them. And then I want us to see the open arms of the father who's just waiting to meet with us. Does that sound good? Now, I know we're having problems. Some of you are like, that's a really cool overflow graphic up there. That's the graphic that means the computer crashed. Okay, so (laughs) 
What that means is all eyes up here. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry. I've got the scriptures. I'll read them to you. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. It'll be great. So I want to share three things this morning. The first one is this, that God came to move you to a new place. So now we don't have it on the screen. You're going to say it with me. Say, God came to move me to a new place. All right, that's good. We start off in the story of Abraham. And in the story of Abraham, I believe what we see is this. We see the father's goodness to kids of courage and compromise. When we look at Abraham, it's a kid of courage and compromise. Thank you, Jesus. Look at that. We can't even ask overflow, and God's just going to fulfill it. We got a culture of stepping up on the tech team. You guys are amazing. The whole story of Abraham, it centers around place, around a homeland, around a family and a nation that God's going to raise up and where they're going to live. We pick up Abram's story in Genesis chapter 12, and it starts this way. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, said, go from your father's uh, country and your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but in that passage, is there a word that maybe stands out over and over and over again? Bless, bless, blessing. If anybody's ever wondered, what's God's agenda? What is it that God wants in my life? It's this. He wants to bless you. That's his agenda. Blessing is the language of heaven. And so he shows up to Abraham and he says, I want to bless you. Problem is this. Abraham had a past. Joshua 24 says that at this very moment, God was speaking to Abraham and his family. They were worshiping false gods when God called them. Now, many people think what happened in Genesis 12 is that Abraham had a squeaky clean story and God showed up and everything was great, right? And it's, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Listen, that was not the story. The story was he had a past. He had a struggle. He worshipped other gods. And then God showed up and said, listen, I want you to step out and obey me. And did you know, immediately, Abraham struggled. Listen to this account in the book of Acts. It says this. It says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, from your family, into the land I will show you. And so Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran with his family. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Don't miss this. God shows up to Abram with a past, and he says, listen, I'm calling you out because I want to bless you. I'm calling you out with my grace right now. I've got something amazing on the road. I want you to step, first of all, out from your family. Step out from your gods. Step out from the circumstances and surroundings that have defined hundreds of years of your life. And number two, I want you to step into the promised land that I've given you. And it says this, that Abraham stepped out with his family and then went to the town of his daddy's choosing. Not exactly obedience. If you look at where Haran is on a map, what you'll see is where God called him was here. Haran is here, exactly halfway to the point of the promised land. It's halfway obedience. And what you find is even after Abraham's dad died, you can't blame it on him, because after Abe's dad died, Abraham settled in Haran. And it says that God had to come, and in Acts chapter 7, it says God had to remove him 
from the land. It literally means to take him by the hand and to lead him all the way out. We talked last week about how our God is a furnace and that he is so committed to who he created us to be that even as we resist him, he will constantly come and refine us. He'll put his hand back out and lead us again because he so much has this road where he wants to bless you. Our Father is patient with our fear and our compromise and our delays because he's come to bless us. We need to remember that Abraham didn't become the father of the faith because he was faithful, but because the father is faithful. Listen to me. Blessing is not based on how good I am. It's based on the goodness of the I am. And our God is faithful, so he's going to bless. And we resist him. He's going to refine because he's just that good. And so we step back into Genesis 12 as God calls him. And finally, Abraham gets to the point where he steps into the promised land, but there's a problem. Suddenly, no sooner than he gets there, there's a famine in the land. There's a shortage of food and a shortage of water, and Abraham does what many of us do. He rationalizes and he redirects. Now, you know what happens whenever we rationalize. When you rationalize, you're telling yourself rational lies. That's what's taking place in that moment. And Abram shows up and he says this. He says, listen, God can't be right where he called me. This can't possibly work because this isn't the land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, everything's been sucked out. I know this is the address God said, but he looks over and he sees Egypt and its water source, the Nile. Now, Egypt, which we know from reading the Old Testament, is going to become synonymous with slavery. And Abram, not Moses, is the first one to take a step into the land of slavery. Abram goes because he rationalizes. Though God said, stay here, I'm going to bless you, he leaves. So we see this, Genesis chapter 12. It says, when Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Oh, y'all, I got so many problems with this passage. (laughs) Problem number one, he's not supposed to be in Egypt. He's supposed to be trusting God in the last place God told him to go. Listen to me. Somebody this morning, you're struggling to hear God because you left the last place he told you to go. Say, why am I not hearing God anymore? You need to go back to the last thing he said and evaluate, how did I do with the last command God gave me? Have I rationalized and stepped out to Egypt? My second problem with with Abram shows up in the words, I know. Anytime, like, I know was the Old Testament, hold my beer. Like, basically, that was what was happening here. He says, I know. Here's my problem. God says, Abram, I'm going to make you a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. Do you know what that at least has to mean? It means he has to at least live to have a kid, right? Because you can't really be a nation without an heir. God said, you're going to live. But as he steps into Egypt, he says, but wait a second. I'm going to elevate what I know over what God said. I know. My third problem, and the one I could preach a whole series of sermons on, is that this dude completely sells his wife out. Look at his reasoning. I want you to do me a favor, Sarai, because it'll go well with me and my life will be spared. Well, isn't that sweet? (laughs) Do you have any idea what Pharaoh will do to her if he's godless and she's beautiful and he thinks she's available? 
See, that is where halfway obedience leads. And what we find out is God is the one that has to intervene. Listen, God was the first campaigner for the hashtag Me Too movement, all right? God was the first one to stand in and go, uh-uh, this is going to be exposed and this isn't happening to my daughter. God shows up, and in a turn of irony, it's a pagan king that has to step up and lecture Abraham on righteousness. And somehow, after all of this, this nearly exact scene repeats again in his life, which is a miracle because, first of all, Sarah stays married to him. But secondly, it's a miracle because Abraham's not there as a map. He's there as a mirror. He's just like us. We look in the story of courage and then compromise, courage and then compromise. We see it's a little bit later and now Sarah can't get pregnant. So once again, Abram rationalizes. There's a popular practice in their day, even among the people of God, that you would marry your concubine. So Abram marries Hagar and he gives birth not only to Ishmael, but he gives birth for the people of God to polygamy, the orphan spirit, and brokenness that hurts everyone. Why? Because we've got to watch out for a new morality that's based on a herd mentality. You've got to watch out for any new morality based on a herd mentality because just because people say God is okay with something doesn't make it okay. Now I want you to know I'm not hating on Abraham. He had some beautiful moments too. Abram risked his life for his nephew, Lot. He trusted in God to take his son, his only son, who he loved, Isaac, and he stepped up to sacrifice him only to find out that our God never required that because our God doesn't call for our sacrifices. He came as the sacrifice that our God loves us so much that he would rather die than kill his enemies. Abram was a child of courage and compromise. So what did God do? God met him on the road and he gave him a new name. Abram means exalted father. He said, no, now your name is going to be Abraham, which means father of nations. And here's the most beautiful thing. If you look at this in the Hebrew, what you're going to find is right in the center of Abram's name, God inserts what is the sound of breath. Abraham. What's happening? In the same way God breathed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's coming to his wayward son and saying, listen, you're struggling. And what I want more than anything is to meet you, my halfway obedient son, and not call you to more willpower. I want you to stop in this place and let me breathe on you so you can live from a new place. In the fullness of time, Jesus shows up to show us who the Father has always been, and he tells us this place isn't somewhere over in Israel. No, it's right here in the residence of every human heart. He says that the new place that he called us to live is called intimacy. John chapter 15, this is what Jesus says. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches, and whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I love this because God is speaking to halfway obedient, halfway there, sons and daughters. Can anybody relate with halfway obedience, courage, and then compromise? What does he say? He says, whoever. Somebody say whoever. Whoever. Guess what whoever means in Greek? It means whoever. (laughs) He says, whoever finds themselves halfway on the road, 
trying to serve me, but you keep compromising. Whoever that is, I just want to call you to do one thing. Stop your to-do lists. Get off the treadmill. Stop trying to figure it out. I want you to abide. Do you know what that word means? It means stubbornly sit. Stop your striving. Stop your figuring out. Stop your doing. Stop your condemning of yourself. Stop your conniving. And just sit before me. Be planted in the soil that is my spirit. And in that place, what you will find is you will bear all the fruit that you need. What is he saying? Let me breathe on you. Let me breathe on you that you can live from intimacy. So here's my question. Where is it you're living in halfway obedience? Are there places right now where you have many beautiful testimonies of where you're saying yes to God, but there are rooms that are closed off that you've given the Holy Spirit no access to? Maybe you say, listen, I love my spouse, and I'm present with my kids, and I'm a hard worker at home, but you know what? I have a secret pornography addiction, and I don't let God into that place, and I struggle with shame all the time. Maybe you're one that it's, I have high morals. I live with great character. I show up at church every Sunday morning, but I have a contractual relationship with God where I believe my time and my energy and my resources are really still mine. I have a room called cultural Christianity where I still get to call the shots on who and how I love and what it's going to cost me. I've got a room where I'm the God of my own security and the God of my own schedule. Maybe there's a place where everybody who knows you says you're the most compassionate person ever. You weep with those who weep. But there are places you've been redefining the lines of holiness. There are places you don't like what God said was good and what he said was bad, and there are popular voices of tolerance coming around and redefining the lines, and you're going with them, and what you find is that you're all grace, but you're muffling the truth that sets people free. The question for the halfway obedient is what room do we need to open up to the Lord, not to solve it and not to fix it, but to let God come close enough to breathe. See, God meets us and changes our name because he wants to give us a new place. The second one this morning is this, that God came to give us a new portion. God came to give us a new portion. And we're looking here now at Isaac, the second son. And Isaac, I believe, is the father's goodness to kids who feel steady, but standard. I got to tell you all in the story, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is tough being Isaac. It is like being the middle movie or book of a trilogy, right? Like I think of my favorite story of all time, Lord of the Rings. You know what? Isaac doesn't get to be the exciting start of the Fellowship of the Ring. He doesn't get to be the setting and the plot and the charge. He doesn't get to be, Abram got a new name. But he also doesn't get to be Return of the King. He doesn't get to be the thrilling conclusion where everything reaches its fullness, where all of the storyline culminates at this place where Jacob and Esau and wrestling with God. And once again, Jacob gets a new name. Isaac's in the middle going, where is my new name moment? My new name got left on the cutting floor. Isaac is the two towers. It's just a bunch of walking around in trees. It's deep. And without it, it would never be an epic story. But his life doesn't feel headline worthy. He's just there. Can I be honest? I've been there. Has anybody ever felt like Isaac in a world of Abrams and Jacobs? Has anybody been at the place where you're like, man, they're getting to do these exciting things, and I know that they're God's favorite, but when it talks about grace for me, I struggle to see it. 
It's fascinating because when you look at Isaac's life, everything of note that happens, happens to him. Every story, I want you to think of every story you know about Isaac. He's just a passive character that's just there in the background. I'll prove it to you. The sacrifice of Abram and Isaac. All the dialogue and all the action is between God and Abram. Isaac's the one with the wood on his back just awkwardly waving in the back, and he's about to die. He doesn't even get a line. It's like, should we kill him? I don't know. Should we kill him? He's <laughs> gathering the wood for his own sacrifice. There's a little violin. <laughs> you get to the story of Isaac and Rebecca, you say, wait a second, his wife. When he got his wife, what a beautiful story, Isaac and Rebecca. Yeah, his dad arranged the marriage, and his servants secured it. After all the drama's done, Isaac just shows up. Hi, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> Even his name, Isaac, means God laughs. You know why he got that name? Because his mom laughed when it was said that she'd have a child in her old age, and it brought her laughter. He can't even hear his name without thinking about someone else. In his whole life, there's only one story where Isaac comes to the forefront, and he acts, and sadly, it's him doing the same exact idiotic thing that his father did with his wife. Everywhere else, Isaac is invisible. And yet... Genesis chapter 25 says this, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Somebody needs to get this this morning. Isaac lived in fullness because he trusted his father to provide. Isaac lived in fullness because he trusted his father to provide. His life had a whole lot less drama. And because he lacked the obsession to carry his own name, it freed him to spend his life in blessing. There's this story that says that Isaac discovered the wells that his father dug that had run dry, and he unstopped them so they would flow again. You know, in our life, especially if you feel invisible, this is what you're going to find. There are places that those who have gone before us, the heroes of our faith, the cloud of witnesses, that they've done amazing things that have now run dry. And there are rooms and relationships that you and I are going to enter where people are needing the living water of hope and life and grace and joy again. And if we step in, we won't get notoriety or awards or attention. We won't be the hero of the story. But the thirsty will drink. See, I think about this picture in John chapter 4 when Jesus shows up incognito to a woman of Samaria that had been given up on by her whole town. In fact, she'd given up on herself. But though no one would praise him, though his disciples were gone, and no one would even notice, it says that Jesus had to go to Samaria because there was a broken woman who needed living water. And the result in his incognito act was she was so changed, she led a city-wide revival. By the way, ladies, you want to know what your place is in the kingdom of God? First revival in the Bible was led by a foreign woman, okay? Just saying. That ain't even in the message, but it's true. Don't get me started on the first people to preach after Jesus is raised from the dead. By the way, it was women. Don't get me started on who it is that Jesus called to, to carry him into the world. It was a woman. Seed of a woman. Anyway, okay. I lean toward Pastor Aaron because I know I'm preaching your language. Some of us believe that we are ordinary and unexceptional in the kingdom of God. And we feel invisible. We keep comparing ourselves to everyone else. We keep getting our peace stolen from us because we feel lacking. And if that's you, I just want to give you two notes this morning. One would be this. 
we are always least likely to recognize the glory in ourselves because it just seems normal for you. It just seems normal. It just pours out so you're not impressed by it. And I would tell you it's why it's so important for all of us that are constantly deflecting. It's not me, it's the Lord. It's not me, it's the Lord. No, it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. He wants partnership, not passivity. So we don't recognize the glory in us, but it is so important that we pay attention to people that we know and love and trust who say, I see glory in you. Some people just think I'm the most optimistic person on the planet, and they'll come to me and they'll be like, Pastor Chuck, you're so encouraging, and they'll say it in a way that's like, I don't really believe you, you're full of crap, but you're so encouraging. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, spend some time with my son Josiah, he'll tell you, my dad's not that optimistic. <laughs> He's not all the time. What's happening is with an apostolic call in me, when I see glory in you, I can't shut up. And it would do you far better instead of deflecting, going, oh, you're so nice, going, he's so kind. He's so good that he put this glory in me. We're least likely to recognize it in ourselves. But the second I would say is this. If you feel invisible and unexceptional, I want to say this, that those who aren't obsessed with the banner of their own name are best positioned to release the living water of his. See, there's a completely unique way that you embody his love. And the Bible says that the parts of the body that feel the most unseen are in reality the most vital. So like Isaac, you and I can step in and be recipients of our full inheritance. In fact, I want to do this right now. Put your hand on your heart. I'm going to do something. I want you to fill it in with your name. I want you to say this. Jesus is giving all he has. Now fill in your blank. To? Yeah, it's your name. That's good. So like to? He didn't give me the prompt. <laughs> Hand on your heart. Jesus is giving, Jesus is giving. All, that all that he has to. <laughs> we'll get it eventually. <laughs> Listen, Jesus is giving all he has to Chuck. Jesus is giving all he has to Ethan. Jesus is giving all he has to Jonathan. Isn't that good? And when we know that our Father has already provided our inheritance, we don't have to strive for it. Well, we trust the Father has provided all that we need so that we can unstop dried wells and stop focusing on who's important and instead just go to who's thirsty. The third one is this. God came so that you and I would live from a new position. We get to the final son, Jacob, and Jacob would be the Father's goodness to kids who are dreaming and scheming. Oh, man, Jacob. Jacob is an opportunist. Jacob is the poster child for the American dream. He's obsessed with greatness and achievement. Jacob wants blessing. He wants his life to matter. And so he's always positioning and always plotting to get what he wants. Jacob's name, it literally means deceiver. In the womb, Jacob grabbed Esau, his older brother's heel, to try to change the birth order. As a teen, he manipulated his brother's weakness to try to steal his blessing and later, when that didn't fully work, he used his favor with his mom to steal his blessing from his dad. And Jacob ran off rich until he began to reap what he sowed. Jacob went into a new land to get a wife, and lo and behold, he's surprised because he's deceived by a scheming dad who gives him the wrong daughter and then exploits him for free labor. I want to say this to you and I, when we push down others in our pursuit of progress, don't be surprised when you find yourself stepped on as a seed in someone else's garden. What? When we push other people down in the pursuit of our own progress, don't be surprised when you've been stepped on as a seed 
in someone else's garden. That's where Jacob finds himself scheming and scheming and scheming, and a man will reap what he sows. And so, in this story of restless striving, we find this, Jacob got wealth. He got wives. He got standing, and it cost him years, and it cost him his family, and it cost him his peace, until finally it caught up with him. Jacob, in this place, thinking he'd escaped it all, gets news that his brother Esau has become successful, and he has found him, and he is coming. And Genesis says, and Jacob was afraid and distressed. Isn't that polite? Yeah, you think he's afraid and distressed? Steals everything of his brothers, goes and builds a new life, and he's coming. And so Jacob makes this deal. He says, I'm going to send my wealth, but I'm going to send it in stations. I'm going to broker a deal. I'll send a little bit, and then a little bit, and then a little bit, and a little bit. Maybe by round three, then I won't have to give away all my treasures, right? Maybe by round three, it says I can appease him. But God stepped onto Jacob's field that night. And it says when God stepped onto Jacob's field, that Jacob wrestled with God. I believe this was another scheme for Jacob to get his way, but he found a match he couldn't manipulate. It says, nonetheless, that Jacob fought all night. And finally, God touched the pivot point for a wrestler. He touched his hip where all of the ability to throw your opponent was gone and all the fight left Jacob. And so he was left clinging when he pleaded and said, would you please bless me? And now we have to step all the way back to the beginning of the story. Genesis chapter 12. What did God promise five times to his family forever and ever and ever that he had come to do? I've come to bless you. You see, all of his fighting was failing because he was trying to obtain what was already offered for free. So somebody hear me this morning. Listen, some of you aren't holding the fruit of the Father's blessing because your hands are already full with sterile seeds you've been storing for yourself. Some aren't holding the fruit. Why isn't God coming through? Because your hands are full. You've been taking seeds from this person and this person and this person, and they've never gotten planted in the ground. And so what you're holding is striving, and it's dirty, and it's worthless. See, blessing is the language of heaven. The Father's default position is to bless us, but Jacob had to be broken first. See, it was helpless in the arms of the Father that Jacob learned that you don't get blessing by wrestling, but by resting. Some of us want so badly to be loved and to be important and to matter, but you keep making every relationship and every room you enter all about you. All you do every day is think about you. All of your efforts are to provide for you. You think about others and what they're due to bless or to stand against you. You're wrestling for blessing and you're hurting them and you're hurting you. But this morning, somebody hear me, God is stepping onto your field. And it's a match that you won't win until you surrender. And find that blessing was yours all along. See, for somebody, what God's going to come and do is he's going to come and change the way you walk. 
Did you know that's what happened with Jacob because of that encounter? Somebody says, why did he touch his hip? Because Jacob was never going to walk the same way again. Jacob was never again going to use his strength to manipulate. He shows up on the field. He says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. My name is Deceiver. And the father says, no more. From now on, your name is Israel. You know what it means? The one who wrestled with God and won. It's the conqueror. And somebody's got to say, how the heck did Jacob win? I don't know. If you can't beat your opponent all night, and at the end of the night, they just push one button on your hip, and it's like, you didn't win that fight. That sounds like the fights I said I won in middle school. He didn't win that fight. How did he win? Because he finally asked for blessing and stopped trying to attain it on his own. Listen to me. God is stepping on your field, and for somebody today, he's ready to change the way you walk. He's ready to change the rooms that you walk in that you wouldn't use your strength to manipulate other people. Jesus said it this way later. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he started the Beatitudes. This is his first sermon, his only sermon. Blessed are those who know they're bankrupt. That there's nothing they can do to wrestle their way to it. They hold nothing in their hands, so their hands are just open for me to bless them, to change their name, and to change the way they walk. Can I tell you the truth? I've been all three of these sons. I've known the compromise of many years of hidden rooms of addictions while putting on a worshiper's face to come to church and smile and, and praise Jesus. I've known the pain of comparison and of feeling invisible. And I've known the grasping at heels like Esau, wanting so much for my life to matter that my days were marked by climbing ladders and running spiritual treadmills and grappling with the people that God called me to grow with. And it was seven years ago, February of 2015, I found myself at this conference all about living a full life for God. I'd shown up to get more tools, something else I could figure out, another rung in my ladder, another gear on my treadmill so I could run faster and go further and prove my worth. But they gave no tools at the conference. Instead, what they told me was that Jesus already paid it all, that it was already finished, and there was nothing left for me to do but just receive. And frustrated, I found myself alone in room 120 of the Days Inn in Fort Myers. God stepped onto my field in that room. And in the next moments, he gave me a new place to live called intimacy. He said words to me of how much he loved me. And he said, listen, son, if you would spend your life at my feet, I'll make your life my sermon and you will never lack anything to say. I realized in that room that I was a mess and he adored me. In those few minutes, I received my inheritance. I can say to you today, like Isaac, everything of note that I've ever received happened to me. My father has been good and he's provided. He finished it. He did it all. In the midst of my mess, he's made me a new creation, so I don't need to be important. It's enough just to be his, and I can live my life unstopping, dried-up wells. But i got to tell you where it ended for me was this. I made a decision in the room that day that I was going to stop being the defender of my reputation 
And it was there that I became the recipient of my identity. It was there I realized that I'm beloved and he adores me. And I got to tell you guys, for the last seven years, I've made my life about one thing. I'm just going to stubbornly sit. Because I'm not invisible to my father. And he loves me despite my compromise. So there's no place that I have to scheme with something that I've dreamed. Our father is stepping on to our road to meet with us. To change the way we walk. To change our name. The question is, will we come to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Would you stand with me? I'm just going to ask right now, if you close your eyes before the Lord, place your hand on your heart. It's just a posture where we come to receive. Father, we've heard, now we come to receive. I want to ask this question this morning. Who is it you're wrestling to become? And your father's saying enough, it's enough for you to just be. Who is it you're wrestling to become? And your father is saying it's enough to just come and be. Would you tell him with your hand on your heart, it's enough to be yours, Jesus. I'm done striving. I want to ask the question, where are there rooms of compromise in your house? Where are there rooms that you've closed off and said, Jesus, I won't let you into this one. I'm going to control this one. I'm going to figure this one out. And right now you see yourself reaching down and taking that key and unlocking the door and saying, come on in, Holy Spirit. I just want you. Maybe somebody this morning, you're caught in the trap of comparison and insecurity. You believe the lie that you're ordinary. And you'd say with your hand on your heart, Jesus, I'm ready to see Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm ready to hear the name you call me. Not the name I've given myself, not the name my behavior has given me, not the name my reputation has given me. I'm ready to see who you made me to be. Maybe this morning you find your hands are dirty from trying to dig up your own seeds. You find that in your career or in your marriage or in your friendships, in your family, that you're jockeying and manipulating to get position and to get what you want. You're wrestling to earn a blessing. To finally be worthy or important or loved or accepted. And you know this morning that it's time to give up. And right now with your hand on your heart, you just say, okay, Father, change how I walk. I'm not going to fight you anymore. I'm just going to ask you to bless me. I'm going to ask every person in the room just to ask this next question and to listen. Would you ask and say, Father, what name do you call me? What name have I been calling myself and what name do you call me? Oh, Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now to every man, woman, and child that you would speak right now. To somebody he's saying precious. Somebody saying beloved. To somebody saying forgiven. To somebody saying free. To somebody saying ambassador. Somebody he's calling general that you've seen yourself as weak. 
saying, lift your head, square your shoulders, know who you are. Oh, would you be done deflecting and say, okay, God, I want to know who I am. If Christ in me the hope of glory, is the hope of glory, then I want to know who I am. Father, would you lift my head? Would you speak to me? If you find in your life that you've wrestled to live in intimacy with God or that you've wrestled to know your identity or you've wrestled to step in the fullness of your inheritance, to get off that treadmill, to stop climbing that ladder, to be a mess and know that he adores you. Listen, y'all, we wrote a 50-day identity devotional just for times of quiet where you can be with your God. It's called the Life in the Overflow devotional. You can get it on Amazon, but I actually have two copies here this morning that I'm going to leave right up here by by Pastor Lynn as he closes us in ministry here in a minute. And I'm just going to ask the first two people that would say, that's me. I need to know it, and I need to sit before my Father and know my identity. We just want to bless you with that today. But right now, for every person, hand on your heart. I just want to pray for you. Father, I thank you for the men and women of the Bible that hold themselves up as a mirror for us all. That no matter where we've been, no matter who we presently identify ourselves as, no matter how far we feel we've messed up, that you have stepped onto our road, that you are stepping onto our field, that you're giving us a new name, that you're calling us to a new place of intimacy, that you're assuring hearts right now in Jesus' name that we have what God says we have. Father, that we would live all of our days knowing that we are your beloved. We come to receive it, Father.